Marquette University. Be the difference. Welcome to Illuminating Intellect, a podcast series highlighting the personalities and pursuits of Marquette University faculty members. I'm Provost Dan Myers, and with me today is Sandra Hunter, Professor of Exercise Science in the College of Health Science. Welcome, Dr. Hunter. Thank you. Glad to be here. I'm really interested to talk to you today because uh, some of the things that you work on are directly relevant to my own life. You're you're an expert in um, fatigue during exercise. That's your main research topic. Correct. Tell me a little bit about that. Well, I've been studying fatigue or muscle fatigue um, for the last 20 years, and uh, it's relevant to uh, what we do during daily activities, but also exercise performance. And I'm particularly interested in understanding uh, the sex differences in fatigability, uh, as well as age differences and what happens. Uh, Do we fatigue more as we age? And how does that affect our daily lives? Um, Also looking at, I've been studying, I've also been studying fatigability in different populations, such as people with diabetes or pre-diabetes. And one of the most recent studies is to understand fatigability of the abdominal muscles in women after they've given had chi- a child, after they've after childbirth, okay. and uh, that's fascinating because uh-huh. it's a really ignored area. Yeah. Is one of your students? Did one of your students give one of the three minute thesis? Yeah. Pre- Aha. Yeah. Actually, two of them did. Okay. One did the. Because someone did talked on that very topic. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. The results are stunning. It's a really ignored area, um, and we think it's fascinating because ultimately, we're um, my student is. She's a physical therapist, and she she was out in the clinic noticing that women were coming to her asking about, you know, what happens to their abdominals uh, during childbirth and after childbirth, and she, there was no literature out there for her to um, inform them. So she came back and did a, a PhD with me, and um, she's found some fascinating results. Even six months after childbirth, the abdominal muscles of women um, are much more fatigable than, say, healthy age-matched um, women. And it's uh, quite stunning. So we're hoping that it may even lead to uh, sort of a standard care visit for women, um, you know, six months or six, six, even six weeks after childbirth. So what, explain, I mean, people could guess, I suppose, why that might be because the, the, I suppose the muscles are being stretched during the pregnancy and then they're they're trying to bounce back after birth but but maybe you could just talk a little bit about why why it uh, is so pronounced and why it takes so long to recover well I, I gotta say we were a bit stunned at how how much it had not recovered in terms of the abdominals had how much they uh, the strength was depleted and as well as how much how fatigable they were um, yeah, and it, it can be uh, the stretch of the muscle um, and also just deconditioning with um, with having a child and all the responsibilities that go with that mm-hmm. and just lack of opportunity to to get back and do some uh, so sort of rehabilitation of the musculoskeletal system. And if you think about it, a lot of the, you know, we're, we're all concerned about the baby after uh, childbirth, which we should be. But often the mother goes ignored, or their neuro, you know their muscular skeletal system goes ignored, and 
Um, and there's there, there's a lot of back pain that can be associated um, with uh, pregnancy and after pregnancy. And there's a lot of you know musculoskeletal disorders that we think leads from that. So some of this comes from uh, really behavioral stuff afterwards, not just the physical part of, of being pregnant. So you're thinking that uh, there might be intervention during pregnancy and after that would help people uh, recover their the Recover more quickly, their, yeah. yeah. Uh, possibly, and we actually don't know. It's a very descriptive study to begin with, but quite profound because it hasn't been sort of shown before. So uh, that's sort of the next step. Why is this occurring? Is it just deconditioning or is it the fact that the muscle's not recovering well? And what do we need to do is um, to uh, rehabilitate the abdominal muscles in women after childbirth? Let's go back to talk a, a little bit about this um, fatigue in general, mm. just to try to understand some of the different aspects you mentioned along the way. So one you said is as we age, our muscles become more fatigable. Um, I'm aging. I'm aware of that. I'm we're denying the, it, but I'm aware of it. And <laughs> we're all on that path. <laughs> yes. Um, and I'm a runner, and I, you know, it's mm. it's a very important part of my life. Actually, I you know run every single day, and um, and I and I have noticed upswings and downswings in my uh, in the fatigue in my legs when I when I run. I'm wondering what's what's in store for me now as I, you know, move into some of the later years of my life, I suppose, in terms of my ability to keep up with this routine that I've established? Well, there's lots of changes that, age-related changes of the neuromuscular system that start to occur. And from about 50, 60 onwards, really starts to accelerate from about 75 years of age on, onwards. Um, and one of, besides a lack of, you know, reductions in strength that occur, um, there's also this change in fatigability. I've been studying that for about 20 years now. and But looking at examining the different aspects of um, fatigue, and if, if, you, if you take, um, if you ask someone to do a contraction, a static contraction, which is what we often do when we're just holding ourselves up or postural, that postural task, that old adults, older adults, and I mean like 65 and over, um, will actually be able to sustain a contraction longer than a younger person, which is fascinating. And that's because the muscle, even though it gets smaller overall, it actually changes its composition to become, to, to take on uh, a characteristic of being more smaller muscle fibres but more fatigue resistant. Mm. So the, the, the characteristics of the muscle actually change. Um, however, what we've found in the last 10 years that when you ask that same muscle, which under these static conditions is more fatigue resistant with age, that if you ask someone to do fast contractions, which might occur, say, when you're running, that in fact older adults are more fatigable. So it's very specific to the task. So these dynamic, fast contractions, older adults are more fatigable, and um, that's what can really start to affect function, such as even you know, rising from a chair or going up a flight of stairs or running, like is, you were saying. Is this, is this related to this notion of fast twitch and slow twitch exactly. muscles? Exactly, yeah. Okay. I was trying to avoid the oh, <laughs> jargon, oh, but, okay. I did. Well, but we can that say in. that. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, so I've heard of that general dynamic that 
for runners, for example, you know, if you intend to be a sprinter as you age, you might as well forget about it. But yeah. longer distances, you might be able to actually do better than you might have done at some of your younger years because it's yeah, a, so a shift in that kind of muscular. So there's a couple of things that happen with aging. So running is dependent not only on your muscular endurance, but on your ability to get oxygen to those muscles. And so you've probably heard of what we call maximal oxygen consumption. Uh, sometimes it's called VO2 max. And that declines with age, unfortunately. Um, and it declines because our maximum heart rate declines and there's nothing we can do about it, no matter how fit we are. Um, that maximal, our maximal heart rate will decline. And so that, that declines with age and that will directly affect um, someone's maximal oxygen consumption, which is then directly associated with speed of running, say, in marathon performance. Um, so, yeah, it's really interesting. We, we uh, have done a couple of articles now um, ex uh, studying the effects of ageing on marathon performance as well as looking at sex differences on marathon performance. And, you know, there's sort of a steady decline from about 40, 50 years of age onwards. Now, the, the other, in, and that's merely because the VO2 max goes down. Mm -hmm. The other really interesting thing is that running, so there's three predictors of running performance in the marathon, okay? There's your maximal oxygen consumption, so how quickly, you can, how your ability to get oxygen to the muscles, and that's dependent on heart size, your heart rate, and your ability to extract oxygen uh, from the blood as it gets into the muscle. And then there's running economy, which is uh, sometimes called running efficiency. So how much oxygen you expend for a given speed. And then there's what we call the lactate threshold. And with, uh, the, the, what happens with age is certainly your oxygen consumption goes down. Your lactate threshold may not change, but your running economy can actually increase mm. with age because, um, and that's why seasoned runners tend to be get better sometimes with age because they become more efficient in their running style. How could I mitigate uh, the chances of myself experiencing fatigue on a run or any, any other exercise? You know, what, what do I, is there things I eat or prepping, does stretching help? Um, does it hurt? Oh, what, what, what makes me be able to um, last longer? Besides just being psychologically tough, but <laughs> what, 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 what could I do to mitigate those effects when I'm going out for exercise? Well, I mean, you mentioned several aspects. I mean, you know, if your nutrition is good um, and you've slept enough and there's all those other aspects that go into performance. But I would say training. And th there's a lot of runners out there, actually, who do a lot of um, slow training. But, uh, you know, interval training can be amazing to increase performance particularly because you're training the enzymes within the muscle to offset fatigue so and that's what interval training will often do you know say two minute sprints or two minute intervals will really really increase performance markedly what about mixing up your exercise i noticed on your profile that you're a cycler and a swimmer and, uh, you know, and, you know, so those different kinds of activities, do they help us 
um, with dealing with this particular kind of with fatigue in our muscles? Uh, It depends on the activity. You know, training is very specific to the task. Um, Sure, if you're training for a, uh, a triathlon, I used to do a bunch of triathlons, used to love it, which is why I like to cycle, run, swim, all that. Um, But, you know, if you want to train for running, you don't have to run. And some cross-training can really help, particularly um, if it's still enhancing your aerobic aerobic capacity, Um, but your muscles might need a bit of a rest, you know, uh, for a day um, with one particular activity. But um, usually you want to keep to the task that you're you're performing. So that's interesting that you brought up rest days because um, as people who know me uh, are aware, I have a running streak going. I have run at least a 5K and sometimes much more, but every single day for over five years now, I'd never miss. And um, I'm wondering, so I don't take rest days and and I, I don't know what I'm doing to myself necessarily. Perhaps you can advise me on whether I should keep up my streak or not. I think it depends on your end goal. <laughs> is your end goal just to run every day or is it actually to do some, have, you know, to perform in some race? My, my end goal is to run a 5K on my 70th birthday at eight minute miles or less. And I figure if I do it every day between now and then, that I surely will be able to do it on that day. I think that's a pretty good strategy. <laughs> Uh, I keep wondering if I'm doing something bad to myself, and, and people will tell me that, you know, if I don't take rest days, I'm going to cause myself problems eventually. But uh, well, I mean, you got to listen to your body. That theory, though. You're 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 telling me to go, right? Well, I'm I'm telling you to listen to your body, also. So you know, if you if you're feeling injured or you're feeling an injury coming on, sure, absolutely, but take a rest. So, so I would say so listen to your body. Tell me how you ended up making it from Australia to Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Yeah, I mean, the temperature gradient is, I mean, <laughs> it's a decrease in temperature with every place I've gone. So I grew up in Sydney. I actually started off as a physical education teacher. Oh. And I did teach physical education for four years. Loved it. Um, went to Queensland to teach uh, in a boys' school that invited women onto the campus. <laughs> <laughs> so you were a, a rugby school. instructor for boys? Uh, for boys and for girls. They had oh, senior oh, they girls, had, yeah, okay, year 11 okay. and 12. That's what I meant. They invited them. They, they'd actually just started. It was a boys' school that then um, went co-ed in year 11 and 12. Um, and I was the first physical education teacher there. Uh, it was fantastic. But after a couple of years, I realized I don't want to be doing – I don't want to be teaching out in the sun getting skin cancer for the next 50 years as much as I like this I like to educate so after a couple of years I um, decided to go back and do some more education and to move vertically um, and to teach at the university level so to do that I went back and did a PhD at the University of Sydney and then when I got out in the early 90s um, you know a lot of the education in a lot of the tertiary education, university education in Australia, is uh, funded by the federal government, and they just put a big clamp down on the um, the funding of federal the federal government and the universities. So there were no positions basically wow. <laughs> available. So I decided to do a postdoctoral fellowship, and so there was nothing really going on in Australia in that area, and so I ended up in Boulder, Colorado, and um, just loved it went to a great lab with 
there were lots of postdoctoral fellows in the lab. I think there was four or five of us. It was a huge lab, lots of PhD students and really well-funded lab um, and learned about muscle fatigue and the nervous system and how the nervous system uh, also fatigues um, during activities. And then I stayed. I stayed in the U.S. I met my husband and got married, and then we came up here to Marquette. All right. Well, we're glad to have you here, that's for yeah. sure. Um, it's a long trip from Australia, though. So, And yeah. the temperature, temperature um, as you mentioned. Yeah, Sydney, Boulder, switch. Milwaukee. <laughs> so How do you like down. the winters? Do you, do you like winter? You know, I've grown accustomed to it. I've learned two things. One, you've got to dress appropriately. And I think after about 10 years, I figured that out. <laughs> You know. 10 years. Yeah, it, t- it took me about 10 years to really get it down. Yeah, yeah. And then, you know, the layers and, but, you know, there's small nuances to that. And the second thing is to enjoy the outdoors in the snow mm-hmm. and skiing. Mm-hmm. And uh, so. I was going to ask you if you skied or something at winter sport because I-, I used to hate winter until I learned to ski and then I had something to look forward to in the winter for the yeah, first time. So, yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's yeah. um so when I was in Colorado I learned to ski and one of my housemates uh took you me mean up flatmate? to Yeah, flatmate. <laughs> 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 took me up to the mountains and she said, Oh, you can come up the mountain, you know, it was a blue run and I'd skied like once or twice in Australia and <laughs> the slopes there are nothing like here. Mm-hmm. And so got up to the top of the mountain and I was petrified and I took two hours to get down the mountain. Yes, I know. Two hours to get down the mountain on my behind. And I was so angry and upset. <laughs> and so at the end of that, I said, by the end of this season, I'm going to get down this slope in five minutes. So I just went up there every weekend until I taught myself to ski. Wow. And by the end, I did. So I learned to downhill ski. That is impressive. I think a lot of people would run away after that first experience. Oh. But it challenged no, you to No, it go challenged back me, in. yeah. yeah. I just... And since coming to Wisconsin, it's been more classic, you know, skiing, right. so... Yeah, yeah. Uh, let me go back to one other uh, item that you... you, you you made me think of it because you mentioned that you did phys ed with both boys and girls, but uh, you mentioned earlier that there are sex differences between mm. men and women when it comes to this fatigue thing. And the the the, the sort of buzz line in the in the notes here is that uh, men are stronger and faster. They tend to be stronger and faster than women, but women are often more fatigue resistant than men. So it sounds like men are showboating, but women are really the tough ones. <laughs> yeah, I'd vouch for that. <laughs> so... Yeah, actually, what I'm probably known for best um, internationally is the sex differences work. Fascinating. And we sort of approach it for two two um, ways. One is we do experiments in the laboratory, um, which I, I've done for years, and I'll, I'll tell you about that. But the other way that we've been approaching the research is to do what um, you know economists do and social scientists, and that is to look at real-world data and to then examine it to try and understand the physiology. Doing the laboratory work is more trying to understand the physiology to understand the real world. So so the experimental data where we do experiments in the lab is um, we often 
we, we bring subjects in participants into the laboratory and we ask them to perform sort of a fatiguing contraction either on their arm muscles or their leg muscles. And over and over again, we've noticed over the years that women are able to either sustain contractions for a longer duration than men, you know, age-matched men, and for a whole host of tasks and for muscle groups. And um, and so for the last 15 years, I've been studying why that occurs. And we've found out a lot of the... We've done experiments to understand are there differences in the way men and women activate their brains. Does that differ? And we've found basically that no, it doesn't. That You know, we use... Um, Stimulation. We stimulate the brain using transcranial magnetic stimulation to see if men and women can drive their muscle similarly um, during a maximal task. Um, but we found that that's pretty similar. And most of the sex differences can really be explained from what the muscle itself and harking back to what we talked about with the age differences, that women tend to have just a more fatigue-resistant muscle where if you give a, a female and a male, a similar intensity exercise. So if you got on a bike and I asked you to perform, you know, cycling at 60% of your maximum and I got on the same bike and did the same, that I would probably burn more fat and less carbohydrate for the same activity that a male would. And so there's men and women have different metabolic responses within their muscle um, to a similar intensity exercise. And that drives some of these sex differences um, in fatigability where women are able to sustain contractions longer than men. So why would that be? I mean, is there an evolutionary biology, bi- biological explanation mm-hmm. for that? Or, or what, I'm always curious what, what's behind these kinds of differences. It could just be hormones, um, you know, testosterone versus some of the more, you know, the female hormones. Um, there's there's some profound differences in you know the physiology of men and women. Men are stronger; they're more powerful, uh, basically because of hormones. And uh, so we think some of that's driving it. But there's a lot we don't know. We don't exactly know if it's if blood flow differs. We've done some experiments on that, suggesting that it can under certain circumstances that that can differ between men and women. Is it the muscle itself? We're taking muscle biopsies at the moment of men and women. It's within a bigger study, an ageing study. Um, so but that's one aspect that we'll be looking at, whether the the single fibre of a female differs to the single fibre of a male. We don't think it does, but we're going to examine that. Some people have looked at that and suggest that it doesn't. Um, but we're also looking at that with age as well. So, so we do these experiments in the laboratory, which I find fascinating. Um, the other aspect is that we, well, it goes back to 2008 when um, this line of research started in 2008 for me when I was called up by a uh, journalist from who was writing an article in Runner's World. And they said, you know, you know about sex differences and ageing. And they asked the question, do men and women peak in their marathon performance at different ages. Mm-hmm. And the reason they ask that is because the female, the, the woman who won the 2008 Olympic marathon in Beijing was 38 years of age and the guy was 21. 
And, and I actually was really honest with her and I said, I don't know. And I actually don't think if any, if I can't recall any study that has examined the age difference of men and women mm-hmm. during marathon performance. So I had some undergrads in the lab. I said, this is a great project for the undergrads. And I gave them the, um, I signed them the task of going back and doing some data mining and finding the performance as well as the age of all the top runners in who had run the top marathons in the world. And yeah, that was Boston, that's New York, Chicago, uh, the Olympics, um, World Championships, mm-hmm. London. And we found that there was zip difference in age of the winners, the top five uh, winners, about 30 years of age. And so they wrote up an article on it, on those preliminary findings, and I thought, well, let's publish this. We've done a lot of work here. So we published the data, and we, if you, uh, we found that the average age of the winners was about 29 to 30 years of age. Um, but actually from that first study came an even more exciting finding, which has kept going in terms of and has really fueled a lot of studies. And what we did is we looked at performance of the, and we compared the sex difference in performance in the marathons of the top male and the top female, the second male and the second female, and went right down to the top 10. And we went back as far as we could in terms of the data we could get off the web from all these top marathons. And what we found is that the sex difference of the top, if you compared the first male and first female, it was about 11 12%. But by the time you got out to the 10th person, it was up to about 14, 15%. And that made no sense to me because I thought, why is this sex difference widening? Physiologically, it shouldn't. You know, is the 10th person different physiologically uh, between the males and females? And what we hypothesize that there's less depth in women's running. Because women have only been able to run the marathon legally since the 1970s. Right, right. So then we went back and we did another study where we got all the data from the New York Marathon and looked across all the age groups and we hypothesized that, and we could get participation rates, and we hypothesized that the sex difference will be bigger when the ratio of men to women within an age group, a 10-year age group, is larger. So that if there's more men compared with women in an age group, you're going to get less of a talent pool of the women. And so therefore, the sex difference is likely to be bigger just because you haven't got the talent pool within that that age group. And that's exactly what we found. And in fact, what we found is that the sex difference was like about 17% when you took all the data together. But And two-thirds of that data you can explain by physiology. So if you take, you know, the... If you take the top marathoner in the world um, for both the men and the women, it's about 10, 11% difference. And they're highly motivated and they're probably the best year we're going to get. So, but what we found is the other third of the data was explained by the participation rates of men and women. And I saw this as a bigger window into a much bigger issue that there's a huge sex bias in biomedical research um, in trying to understand diseases and physiology that we often under, we often uh, study the male and I'm not knocking males here <laughs> but what I'm saying is that women are just as important and we need to understand that too 
So, and that maybe if we don't have the number of women that we need in our studies of physiology and with disease, that in fact we may not be seeing the true sex differences that exist there. Mm Yeah, we're probably truncating the distribution by not having enough representation yeah. across the spectrum yeah. when you have and smaller numbers. Eh, no question yeah. that that's a huge problem. So, yeah, yeah. And, there's, and there's huge sex bias in research, particularly in the neurosciences, yeah. um, even within the animal models, which is why the National Institute of Health these days have uh, mandated that w- women need to be tested and that um, animals and cells now need to be identified that their sex because every, every cell has a sex. Well, thank you so much. That's all the time we have for today. I want to thank Dr. Hunter for being with us, and also I want to thank you for listening. To hear more Illuminating Intellect and other Marquette podcasts, visit www.marquette.edu slash podcasts.